his being. And verse 18 says, that's why the Jews were all the more seeking to put him to death. And in the Gospel of John, this is one of the primary reasons for the hostility of the Jews, why they wanted Christ dead. Um, he was claiming equality with the Father. Um, it was blasphemy, at least they thought. It would have been a capital offense. Um, such a claim threatened one of the central pillars of Judaism, monotheism. There is, how many gods? There is one true and living God. Um, and they thought, at least, that it was a threat um, to monotheism. And so the following verses, verses 19 to 21, is Jesus' explanation of what it means that he is God's son and how that does not threaten the central doctrine of Old Testament and New Testament, that there is just one God. How is it that Jesus is not setting himself up as independent from God, as equal with God in some way in competition with God the Father? If he's totally equal with God, how is it that there are not two gods or three gods? That's a significant question that John and Jesus are seeking to answer in this very section. So we entitled it, Three Explanations of the Nature and Implications of Jesus' Sonship. Um, and just a quick review from last week, verses 19 um, through 23, we sort of saw two things going on in this. The first one was that Jesus is indeed equal with the Father. He possesses everything it means to be God, just as God the Father. Every attribute, everything that it means to be God was the Son's. And let me point out a few things from our passage. Do you remember we pointed it out from our passage last week, a few of the indicators that Jesus is just as fully, truly God as, as the Father. Do you remember what some of those were? First thing we see is that he's able to see and do whatever the Father does, right? Only someone who is truly God could, could do that. But beyond that, everything that the Father does, he does through his Son. He doesn't do that through any other created being. No other created being could possibly be the agent that accomplishes the Father's purposes. More than that, it says that just as the Father gives life to whomever he pleases, the Son gives life to whomever he pleases. So you see in the Old Testament, Elijah and other people raising the dead, they're mere instruments of God's power. But Jesus is claiming something very different from that. He gives life from his own being, whoever he wants to, just like God the Father. And then finally, um, the Son is to be worshipped and honored just as God the Father. Oh. A king that sends an emissary, a delegate, um, that delegate, that emissary, should not receive the same honor as the king that sent him, right? That's not the case for Christ. He is to be honored. In fact, that's the Father's mission, is that the Son would be worshipped at the same level as God the Father. But there are not two gods. And there's not three gods, but there's one God. How is that the case? It's not just one God, but this God is a total unity of a fellowship and subordination within the Godhead. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. How John summarizes this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinct from God the Father. 
The idea is he was with him. He was towards him. I've heard it explained as he was like eye to eye with God the Father. Intimate fellowship with God, distinct from the Father. And the word was theos, God. Just as God as Father. Distinct and yet very God of very God. Look at verse 18, chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only one, the Son, God, again, Theos for the Son, who is at the Father's side, literally in the lap of the Father, he has made him known. Again, we see this declaration, absolute deity, Theos, God, and distinct, eternally loved and in fellowship with the Father. And that is exactly what our text this morning is declaring to us. That's what we saw last week. So we not only saw in our text last week, these evidences of his equality with the Father, but also his distinction in his role as a son. In other words, he has existed from eternity as a son in subordination. And we said that subordination does not imply what? Inferiority. It doesn't imply that he's any less God because he's subordinate to his Father, in submission to his Father. And this was... Uh, where we were last week, he explains his role as the son. We'll just pop these up here um, really quickly. He imitates his father out of perfect submission in verse 19. Um, the son is always responding to the father. The father is always initiating. The son is always responding. He's in complete harmony with the perfect headship of the father and submission to him as a son. That's why later in the Gospel of John... Um, Jesus declares, the Father is greater than I. Have you ever read that and wondered, so is, is he more God? Is Jesus less God? Well, no, absolutely not. John has already demonstrated that. The Father is greater than I. Why? Because he exists as the Father, and I eternally as a son in submission to him. And yet it doesn't imply inferiority in his nature. He's not any less God because of this. There's not only his perfect submission, there's also this mutual love between the Father and the Son um, the next verse tells us why is it that the Father's doing everything through the Son? It's because the Father loves the Son. And we said some implications from this is that every work of God through the Bible, anywhere, is Trinitarian. Everything God does is as a unity, as a harmony, in perfect fellowship and submission within himself. And every work of God is the burstings and overflowing of the eternal love of God within the Trinity. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and out of that love comes everything that God does. And then finally, the ultimate reason this passage is that not only is the Son in perfect submission to the Father, but the Father is after the Son's honor and worship um, alongside of his own very end. So it's a very profound passage, and uh, the whole point of those verses is to explain Christ's role as the Son of God. Um, but now that brings us to um, our passage this morning. Uh, verse 24 is your next point on your, on your outline. Jesus explains the right response to his word as the son. And as we come to 24, uh, verse 24, we have two questions that are sort of lingering in our, in our minds from the previous passage. The first is, how does one honor the son, right? Just said that the father's goal is that everyone would honor the son along with the father, and then if you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. So then how do you honor the son? How do you do that? And the other question is, 
who does the Son give life to? Remember back in verse 21? It said that the Son gives life to whoever he wants. Well, who are those? And verse 24 answers both of those questions. Those who honor the Son and those to whom the Son gives life are the same people. Who are they? Look at verse 24. Let me read it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What's the answer to those questions? The answer is, it's believers. It's believers. So let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 24a tells us that those who honor Christ express a submissive faith toward the Father and the Son. They express a submissive faith towards the Father and the Son. So look at the first part of the verse. It says, Jesus says, the one who hears my word. So this is sort of the first half. Notice how Trinitarian this faith is towards the Father and the Son. First is they must respond toward the Son's word with submissive faith. Jesus says, the one who hears my word. It doesn't say words. It says word. That is the totality of my message. Everything that I have come to declare is true about God, about sin, about redemption. Just totality of my message. He has come as a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet with a word, a message from God. Now the question is, how do you honor a prophet? We've already seen this in John. Do you remember where? How do you honor a prophet? Think back to chapter 4. Go back there with me. He has come with a word on behalf of another. How do you honor one like that? Believe the word. You believe it. Good. Excellent. By faith. Look at verse 44. Chapter 4. After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen the signs he had done at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Um, don't have time to unpack this. Uh, we already did back when we studied it. The idea is they don't honor him because they receive him as a sign worker and don't receive his message. They don't receive it by faith and submission what he has declared. You honor a prophet by believing his word. That's what Jesus says. He's come as a prophet. The way you honor him is you respond to his word. So how do you respond? Look back at verse 24. The one who hears my word. The idea of hearing is not that it just reverberates on your eardrum, obviously, right? What is hearing? It means you respond to it with a submissive obedience, with, with, with a faith. Um, you hear it, you submit to it as true. You embrace all Jesus claims to be as the Son. Okay, so that's the first half. So you respond towards the Son's word with submissive faith, but you must respond towards the Father as the sender with dependent faith. But what else? Jesus has not only come speaking his own words on his own authority. There is an inseparable tie between his word and God the Father. In other words, one must respond to Christ by believing and receiving all that he has spoken as true, as one sent by the Father, but now flip that around. That looks like believing in the Father according to all that the Son has revealed about him. The Father not only stands behind the Son's coming, but the Son's coming is in order to reveal the Father. 
The point is, is that both of these ingredients are necessary to saving faith. If any are missing, it is deficient faith. So I'm going to just pause here and just unpack this a little bit with you and, and uh, get some interaction. One helpful way about thinking of, uh, about this kind of faith towards the Father and towards the Son, you see, is to think about what would it be like if one of these components were missing. Right? So let, let's do this first. Should faith be directed exclusively towards the Son, neglecting or rejecting the Father as his sender? What would the implications of that be? Why is it necessary? What would the implications be if, no, I don't embrace a father having sent the son? Um, I reject that? I neglect that? What do you think? It's a number of massive implications. Thank you. If, yes. you're, if you're not um, responsive to the father, but you're just believing in the son, mm -hmm. you're disobeying the son because he is... Excellent. He's meant there to point people to father. Yep. It's good. Excellent. Good. What else? Communicate that it wasn't the Father's will, but it was just Christ yeah. uh, acting independently of the Father. Excellent. Yep, yep. So it would sort of set him up. This is this very thing that he's trying to explain he's avoiding. He's not some competing God. He's not some competing deity that's at odds with the Father's will. Um, it would indict the Father as being the some unloving deity that the Son has to now come and, and placate somehow. Uh, the Father doesn't care or he... Um, has no love or concern, and it, but the son does, and um, what a massive indictment to the character of God. What else? How else would it destroy the gospel, really? Everything that the father said in the, in the earlier times that mm. pointed to the need yeah. for a savior would just be separated. Excellent. So, I mean, yep. the, the fall of man, all of that. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Really good. Yep. What else? Did you say for the question of sovereignty of God as well? Um, because you know, it was determined before the foundation of the earth that this would be the repentant story. Sure. Yep. Yep. It seems like inconsistency there, I guess. Mm -hmm. Good. Yep. It would also destroy the atonement. Who did Christ, how did he die? Was he punishing himself? Was he paying a ransom to the devil? What was going on? It was the Father's will. He was in submission to the Father. Um, another very significant implication is if the Son is believed and his word received, but not as one who's come on the authority of another, then he would be a self-glory seeker and untrue. Look at the end of chapter 5. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus would be standing on his own authority for his own glory. He would be just like all the rest of the false Christs and all the rest of depraved humanity who stands on their own authority and seeks their own glory. He would be just as false as In other words, if faith in the Son leaves out faith in the Father who sent him, then we have no gospel. You have to have both. 
But flip it around now. What if faith directed exclusively to the Father but neglecting the Son? That's really what the Jews are doing in this passage. This is really the main implication of the passage. The Jews think we believe in the Father. We, we submit to him. But we just don't want you, Christ. We don't believe you. What would be going on there? I think in the uh, same light, you still wouldn't have the atonement. Yeah. Um, but yep. on the flip side, you wouldn't have the sacrifice, yep. the perfect sacrifice. For yep. the Excellent. Sorry. You know, it seems like you get that a lot today. <clears throat> People talk about God. Yep. Because they don't want you to mention Jesus. Sorry. That's excellent. Yep. Every religion in the world, Islam especially, um, you know, worship God. Uh, you don't know God. You do not know the Father. So any this is just something you can use for any, I believe, or any religion. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. It's just inseparable tie. He is the greatest disclosure of the person of the Father. And that's why it reveals the Jews don't know the Father because they've rejected his greatest disclosure in the Son. They're inseparable. Yeah, some of the some yeah. of those other faiths that claim to be of the book, like Islam. Yeah. Um, we'll say that you know the son, they just don't know him yeah. as he defines himself. That's right. So, I mean, they'll say, yeah, he's a prophet. He's yep. a, he a holy man. Yep. And so they'll say, see, you know, we can have a conversation. Yep. But the point is, you don't know him as he's disclosed himself. Exactly true. He's, he's revealed in scripture. You don't know him. Yep. And that's the point here. You must respond to his word. What is his word? It's his declaration about himself and his relationship with God the Father. It's absolutely essential. Yeah, that's good. So the whole point is how essential the Trinity is for the gospel. It's not arbitrary. It's not just this uh, doctrine that you got to, you know, believe just as a, a doctrinal test to get in. No, it, it's fundamental to the person and the being of God and his work of, of salvation and redemption. Um, so all of that describes how to respond um, to the Son, how to honor the Son. Um, and those who do, let's go to the next point here. Those who honor the Son experience a present reality of the final salvation. Look at the rest of verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. Remember back in verse 21, the Son gives life to whomever he desires. Who are they? Answers believers. Believers. What is this life? What does it say? It is eternal life. It is the life of God and the soul of man. Those who believe have eternal life. Look at that. Does it say they will have eternal life? No. What does it say? They have eternal life. This is probably, this verse is probably one of the clearest expressions in the Gospel of John of your present possession of eternal life. Eternal life isn't just never-ending life. It's that, obviously. It is a kind of life. It is the life of God, which will be experienced in the age to come, present now in you. You have eternal life. Later in John, it will define eternal life as intimate knowledge of God. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the eternal God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is an intimate knowledge of God that's made possible by the forgiveness of every one of your sins, the transformation of your nature by the Holy Spirit. And that's yours now. So Jesus says, by faith alone. 
Look at the rest of the verse. Look what he says. He unpacks this a bit more. What do you mean, eternal life? He does not come into judgment, but has already passed out from death into life. In other words, the ultimate realities which still await us, the, the, the coming judgment, there is a final judgment that is coming. There is a final new creation that is coming. Jesus says in a very profound sense, it has already begun for believers. Believers, you don't need to wait around before you can experience the first fruits of the consummation. You don't need to wait around. Those who believe in the Son, as we just described it, have already passed out from the realm of death into the realm of life. In other words, there is no more coming judgment out there looming for believers. It's behind you. I just want to just take time to just meditate on this, just some of the glories here. You have so entered into eternal life now that you will never die. You realize that, right? You will never die. Look over to John 11. Obviously, the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus is making the very same point he's making in our passage. He is the resurrection in life. What does that mean? It means the resurrection that's coming has already decisively begun. And he's given an example of that in the raising of Lazarus. Chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, there it is, right? Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Shall never die. You'll never die. Why? Because even in physical death, you're simply entering into life which you have already begun to experience. That's the point. You have already entered into life. Death is but a doorway into the fullest, final consummation of the experience of life that you've already begun. I think I have it up here. Yeah, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. Oh, wish we had time. Go there later and read it. It's incredible parallel passage to this, of uh, the fact that you have life abiding in you. Let me just, just, just say here, um, believers, just let it sink in. Rejoice in this. If you're trusting Christ, you are now just as certainly saved, free from the coming judgment, alive with new life, as you will be in the resurrection. Just as certain. It's coming, but its sweet realities are yours now by faith in Christ. Revel in these truths. Rejoice in these truths. There is no condemnation. It's a thing of the past. Why? Because the Father sent his Son. You have now the privilege to enjoy a foretaste of the new creation that's coming. That means intimate fellowship with your triune God. You have access to know and commune with the Father as your Father. It's astonishing. And as the Son, as the one sent by the Father and your Savior, and as through the Spirit, directly, as the one sent by the Father and the Son. You don't have communion with God as this vague idea and concept. You don't just pray to God. You pray to the Father in communion and in the name of the Son and through the Spirit. You have access to that now. 
It means you have total freedom from the dominion of sin in your life. And you have a motivation to be putting that to death because that's not going to be anywhere in the new creation. And it's already begun in your life. It means massive hope as we see death looming for us in the future. Maybe next year. Maybe 10 years. Um, 30. I don't know. Massive hope. Because death no longer means judgment. It means a doorway into the life that I've already begun to live. Massive hope here. And Christ has come to give us just this. So rejoice. Praise the Lord. It's grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, by receiving the Son as one sent by the Father. He's come to give new creation life. So that brings us to our next point, which really now summarizes everything and brings it together. Any quick question, comment before we move on to verses 25 to 29? All right, so look at look what it says here. Jesus explains now the resurrection coming through his authority as the Son. This section builds on and unpacks a little bit more of what um, you already learned. The question these verses are now seeking to answer is this. What's the connection between his word? Right? He said, whoever hears my word has eternal life. What's the connection between these two? How is it that the word of Christ brings life, eternal life, to people who simply believe him? The answer is that the son and his word as the son is the channel along which his life flows. The Son is the source of life, just as the Father is the source of life. And this life pours from him and creates life through his word. So we just lost our power a couple weeks ago. I know Mark was without power. And you had a generator. How do you get that power of the life of the generator into a dead house with no life, no vitality, no, no, no light, no anything? What is it? There has to be a connection. There has to be a cord. Plugged in the generator, yes. plugged into Pro the house. Propane right? gas. And a <laughs> propane line, whatever it is. And the point here is that what is that extension cord? What is the link between the life of the sun and dead souls or the nothingness of creation uh, before there is creation? The answer is it's his word. It's the word of Christ which communicates and brings his life to that which has no life. And again, this is... a. Uh, this is huge. Look at verses 25 to 27, the already, not yet, of the resurrection. Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is. Well, what's the hour? The hour is the, the time, verse 28 will tell us, in which the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and live. It's the final resurrection. That's coming, Jesus says. But the point is that that hour has already begun in some way. How? Through the person and work of Christ. So let's read verse 25 here. I forgot my clicker. That's why I have to keep going back and forth here. Verse 25. Hours coming and now is here. Why is it now here? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's now here because the Son is here and he is speaking. Why is it already begun? Because the Son has arrived and is speaking words. The picture here is of the dead hearing the, the voice of God and coming to life. So think back to Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, right? Remember that? This vision, um, it represented the, the, the spiritually dead of Israel 
lifeless towards God and under his judgment. And the promise was one day God would resurrect them to life. And Jesus says that that time has begun. And before physical resurrection happens, there must be a spiritual resurrection that he has come to, to bring in. That is the new birth that John has been talking about. But look at something very surprising for the Jews. They would have expected God to raise the dead. But look at the means. It is coming through the voice of the Son of God. The coming resurrection, which has already begun spiritually, is caused by the life-giving voice of the Son. So just think back to the, the sign in chapter 5. This lame man, lame for 38 years. What happens? Jesus, what? Speaks. And immediately restored to full health. That's the point. The, the power of the voice of the Son of God. It communicates the life and creates what it commands of himself. The point is that the voice of the Son creates what it commands. It commanded the first creation and spoke and galaxies came into being out of nothing. And the point is that same voice not only will recreate, it's in the process of recreating. Jesus is in the process of creating his people by his word. So the question is, how is the voice of Christ heard? Well, it's not just when he was on earth, right? How do you hear the voice of Christ? Where do you hear it? It's in the scriptures. And the point is, John is writing this. Like, he's writing this as inspired scriptures, as inspired eyewitness testimony. The point is, is that Christ is currently in the process of creating people through his word that is the scriptures. That is how new creation life comes, by the power of Christ's word in the Bible. <coughs> same voice which will raise the dead which will also create all things is right now speaking and doing a life creating work so let me just ask you how do you think of the scriptures do you realize that the words in this book are not lifeless do you realize I know we wouldn't say that do you really believe that they're not powerless these are the same these words here have the same kind of power which in the first creation spoke stars planets Galaxies and molecules and everything came out of nothing and instantly were created. It's the same power. That's the point. The power of Christ's word. And they're proclaimed every Sunday morning here. And they're laying in your Bible on the table every day for you to open and read. Powerful. The voice of Christ creates what it commands. How does he speak? He speaks in his word. So before we move on, let me just ask you, how do you treat the Bible? Does my life's relationship to his word reflect a soul which really believes this? I say I believe it. So, someone examine my life, would they conclude that? What would it really look like in my quiet time or, or time of scripture intake if I really believed this? What would it really look like in my hunger and zeal to gather with the body as the word is proclaimed if I really believe this? Do you really believe this? The voice of the Son of God is how he creates life. And those who are dead, and it's how he sustained life in you, right? If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll what? You will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, my words in you, my life in you, you can do how much things? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You need it. It's powerful. It's how he creates his people. It's how he nourishes his people through his word. But why does the Son have this kind of life-creating power? That's the next question, verse 26. 
Look what it says. It's because of his life in himself being. It says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God the Father has life in himself. What does that mean? It means he is self-existent. It means he didn't receive life from outside of himself anywhere. He is the source, the eternal source of life. And Jesus says that just like the Father, so also the Son has this life in himself. The theological word is aseity, self-existence, um, independence from anything. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, look at that. Just so you can see, this is an eternal quality of Christ, not just after his incarnation. It says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. This is pre-incarnation. In him was life. The eternal source of life belonged to himself. And the point is that because of that, it flows out of his being to all that he speaks his word to. But there's something very profound in this verse I just want to look at really quickly. It says the Father has given to the Son to have life in himself. Now what in the world does that mean? The Father has given to the Son to have life in himself. The point is, is that the Son is just as self-existent as the Father, but he's also a Son. And we're, we're moving into some just mysterious and glorious territory. I don't want to go beyond what the Scripture says, but I want to go as far as the Scripture says. In a very mysterious sense, the Son owes all of his life in himself to the Father. He is a son. This is what the what theologians call the eternal generation of the son. Eternal generation of the son. Listen to how Nicaea Creed puts it. The son of God begotten from the father. The only begotten. This one is from the substance of the father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made of the same substance with the Father. In other words, God is not some abstract being that, 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 that's made up of Father, Son, and Spirit. But behind everything is an eternal, loving, life-giving Father. Who eternally begets a Son. There's never a time when the Son was not. He was not created but eternally begotten, pouring forth from the life of the Father. Listen to Michael Reeves, how he puts it here. The Father would not be the Father without his Son. The Son would not be the Son without his Father. He has his very being from the Father. They are who they are together. And they always are together. And this always will work together. That's the basis of the son's life in himself. He is a son, eternally a son. Who's all of his life from the father and who pours out all of that life on creation and on the new creation. And how does he do it? Through his word. It's amazing. Well, we have five minutes left. Let's, uh, let's bullet through these next few verses here. Verse 27. The son's authority to judge. Look what it says. Let me read the next three verses. And he has given him, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the son's authority to judge in verse 27. It's because of everything we've just said that this is true. He's the father's agent who's going to bring forth his perfect judgment to mankind. We're going to be in Daniel um, coming up, and we're going to learn about him. He says, because he is the son of man. That's Daniel 7, the one the father has appointed to bring forth all of his judgment and all of his promises of salvation for his people. He is just that. Why? Because of his nature as son, fully God and fully son. So look now at verse 28, point B here, to 29, the universal extent of the final resurrection. Again, he says, the, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Now he's, now he's looking exclusively to the future. When all who are in the tombs We'll hear the voice of the sun will come out. The point is the inescapability of the sun's voice and the unavoidability of the coming resurrection. On that final day, there will be no escape. So right now, the sun is speaking, and all who hear come to life. In other words, it's the sun's voice that's creating life to hear him. Right? Dead people don't hear him. He speaks, people come alive, they hear him, but not everybody does, right? He gives life to who? Whomever he wishes. But one day, it's going to be inescapable. He's going to speak, and everyone in the tombs, look at what it says. All who are in the tombs. You won't get out. You're not going to stay in the tomb. You're not going to hold that rock. Lazarus come out, and he comes out. All who are in the tombs. His powerful voice will call all, cause all bodies to be resurrected and come out. It's also unavoidable. Look at verse 29. And to come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil, the resurrection of judgment. It will be unto two kinds of resurrections. Did you know that not only believers are going to be raised from the dead, unbelievers will? Revelation 20 talks about this. Upon Christ's return to set up his kingdom, there will be a resurrection. If you've experienced spiritual resurrection in this life, you will be a part of that enjoy the kingdom. And following the thousand year reign of Christ, there will be another resurrection. And John says, you don't want to be in that resurrection. It's a resurrection of judgment. The first is to give you glorified bodies to enjoy the new creation in the immediate presence of God to the fullest extent. The second resurrection is to give you a body to experience eternal torment. It's terrifying. In other words, some will be raised with new bodies which are suited to enjoy the pleasures of God for eternity and others for judgment. But look at the basis. Look at, look at the very end here. Those who have done evil, first those who have done good unto resurrection of life and those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment. Notice it's a judgment based on works. You say, well, what in the world? I thought it was by faith. How is it, how is it by works? We've talked about this a number of times in this class, but judgment is always by works. You will be judged according to your works. He said, how's that work? It's because the works are not the foundation of your salvation. They're not the foundation of your judgment. It's by grace through faith. But what everybody who has experienced eternal life, what do they do? They bear what? They bear fruit. And that fruit will be evaluated. It's not as though the works earn you anything, but they testify that resurrection life has taken place or has not taken place in your life. 
So there's a lot there. We could keep going. It's 10.15, and I want to um, just take a couple minutes and throw a few things around uh, with you here. And um, It's a weighty passage, and my goodness, is it a glorious passage. Um, I know everyone in this room has people they're burdened for, um, unbelievers and our family, friends around us. And there's a weight. We just see that weight in this last verse of the coming judgment and then the glories of salvation and the new creation. What is your hope? You have no ability to give life in yourself. What gives life? The word of God. Be faithful to make it known. Make it clear. Speak it. And trust Christ to do the work. He might do it now. He might do it 30 years down the road. Trust him. Rest in him. What else? Any other questions, comments before I give you a couple more closing implications as you close your way? Yes? Uh, just jumping off that, it's so encouraging. I mean, because I often think that I need all the philosophical arguments or yeah. to be equipped to evangelize. I need to have it all put together. Yeah. Uh, but you just need his word. Uh, it is so powerful. That's very yeah. comforting and encouraging. Yep. It doesn't mean you're casual. It doesn't mean you don't strive to, to make things clear. It. It's the word that gives life. It is just as powerful as what created the first creation. Absolutely. Michael, my yes. mom went to the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And uh, how God could have said anything, but he said, listen to him in that moment. I just, I just thought that was helpful in light of kind of what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's God's this goal for humanity is to listen to Christ. Yeah. Take you, that's a good it's a good word it's a good good word to close on honor the son by listening to him submitting to his word progressively <laughs> by faith bearing fruit you have eternal life as you abide in him and he and his word abides in you so let's pray Father Lord we thank you glorify your name we ask that you would do it in the service to come through the preaching of your word that we would respond um, again by faith and grow as your people very much fruit for the glory of Christ, all of the glory of you, Father, through the power of your spirit at work. We love you, thank you, as you build us up and um, come with us this week. We love you. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name.